for our sermon text this evening, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13 with our emphasis being upon verse 13 this evening. Before reading from the word of the Lord, let's get to our God in prayer. Our Lord, our Heavenly Father, we ask that each time we gather in this place to worship your name, that the spirit of the risen Christ who dwells within the hearts of those who are your children would work within an increased love and devotion toward Christ our Lord, stirring within increased obedience, affection, and pursuit of that most blessed, risen, reigning, and coming again Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The Word of our God, you may be seated. You know, the book of Acts, I think, is a wonderfully encouraging book. It's a book that gives us a glimpse into the amazing power of God and the ability of the spirit of the risen Christ to redeem lost sinners. It's a book that lays out for us the wonderful hope of the gospel to change and transform hard hearts, to save those who were once lost, bringing them into newness of life. It's a book which affirms to us that the eternal decree of God is unshakable, and nothing will stop our God from accomplishing His purposes. And certainly these are things that we as God's people need to hear in the times in which we live. One of the main things that sort of keeps us going and persevering in the Christian life is the hope that the promises of God will one day become a reality. We hear this language frequently within the church, that we live between the already and the not yet, that we live between promise and fulfillment of that promise. Now, the world around us will charge us with embracing a naive hope or believing something simplistic in this hope. 
We are maligned as foolish to believe that the promises that God makes to us, in a words so archaic and ancient contained in this book, will one day come to be. And so what the book of Acts does is it helps to cultivate that perseverance in Christian living. It helps to feed our hope because the book of Acts is like a foretaste. It's like an appetizer to the glorious feast that awaits those of us in Christ. Because in the book of Acts, we begin to see old covenant promises come to fulfillment. We see the work of Christ bring transformation into the lives of many. When Pastor Williams preached through the book of Acts not that long ago, you might remember that it is a book of history. But it is history that is meant to make a difference in our life and faith as believers in the Lord. Because, of course, it's not just history for its own sake. It is theologically driven history. It's history that instructs. It's history that informs. It's history that guides and directs the believer in Jesus. And so if you want to know the implications of the gospel, if you want to know how your profession of faith should be lived out, well, the book of Acts is a wonderful place to go. And so tonight, let's consider the boldness of Peter and John here in chapter 4, a boldness that has its origin in the risen Christ from their Savior. And let's consider what we can learn for our own lives as we together as a local body seek to follow our Savior, Jesus. And so first this evening, what did this boldness look like? What did the boldness of Peter and John look like here in Acts chapter 4? Well, just prior to this, and the reason why the religious leaders are in such an uproar is because Peter, through the power of the risen Christ, spoke words of healing to a man lame from birth. And as he was immediately healed, he leapt for joy and praised God. And immediately following that, the gospel was proclaimed, and we read in our text that there were some 5,000 who put their faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins. And when those in positions of authority over the people saw this happen, they were angry, they were jealous, they were envious, they were fearful over losing their own power and this word that was being proclaimed not being authorized by those in such positions of authority. And so they take Peter and John and put them in prison for the night. And the next day they are brought before the religious leaders so that they might inquire further as to why there being such a disruption. You might picture in your mind this very intimidating scene that John and Peter must have walked into. Here they are spending the night in prison, probably not given the opportunity to put on their three-piece suit before coming before this court. And they stand before learned men, influential men, powerful men, articulate men, men who are confident in their own self-righteousness. Undoubtedly, this context, this setting was to create such fear from those who might come into their court that it would cease this effort to proclaim the name of Jesus. Remember, this is the same court that had condemned Jesus to death. Some of the exact same men are present. Humanly speaking, it would make sense for Peter and John to be intimidated, but the exact opposite is the case. 
when I was somewhere around the sixth grade, I was called into the principal's office. Doesn't matter why, that's a story for another time. But these were in the days in which the principal was allowed to paddle the students. Much better times, weren't they? And I don't remember anything that the principal says, but I can still picture in my mind sitting across the desk from him and the paddle which was usually on the wall behind him brought and laid upon the desk in front of us. He could have said anything and I would have agreed to it to avoid the paddle. And so being called before the religious leaders was meant to create this type of response, to get these men to stop being a disruption, stop disturbing the status quo, stop teaching something that we don't agree with, that does not have our endorsement, stop speaking of Jesus. But their boldness is truly amazing, isn't it? There's no fear of man. There's no intimidation before this human court. There's no crumpling before that paddle of that human institution. There's no concern for the consequences of what might happen to them. Peter's message in verse 10 is clear. You killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Peter and John, you see, are men who are so ruled by their love for Christ that they are moved toward that lame man to serve him in the name of Jesus. And they didn't stop to think about all the contingencies of hardship and difficulties, the consequences that were going to come into their life because of what they were about to do. And now they stand before these religious civil leaders, and they will not back down, and they will not cease to proclaim the name of of Jesus. And why? Because something utterly life-transforming and transcendent has happened to them. Something has captured their mind and heart and so rules that inner man that it affects everything in their life. Now, how did this happen? Where did this boldness come from? And that leads us to the second thing I'd like us to see from the text, which is just to ask this question again. Where did this boldness originate? Where did this boldness come from? When Jesus was arrested and he was led away by those Roman soldiers, you'll remember Peter followed and he was there in that courtyard in the distance. And he denied Jesus three times, one being before a young girl who questioned him. But now he stands before some of the most powerful men in the land, And he makes one of the most important statements ever uttered. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to man under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, Peter is not just stating something that is true, although this is a true, compact, wonderfully, theologically rich statement. But Peter is actually calling for these men in their self-righteousness to humble themselves and embrace Christ as Lord, the very Christ that they sent to the cross, a work which was sufficient and is sufficient to atone even for their sins. Rest in him alone for salvation. Repent of your hard-heartedness because a judgment day is coming. And the way in which you respond to Jesus, perhaps the way in which you respond to him even now, will determine your eternal destiny, will determine how you stand or fall on that day. This is nothing less than the call of the gospel toward these self-righteous men to repent 
and to believe in Christ alone for salvation. And notice the response of these religious leaders in verse 13. The leaders are somewhat taken aback, amazed at the boldness of these men for their uneducated, common men. And it's astonishing that they would have such poise and confidence, trust in God, and assertiveness to speak to them in such a manner. And to say that they are uneducated and ignorant is to say that they have not been taught in the right schools of rabbinical teaching. Peter and John don't have the educational credentials that these men who stand in the court before them do. They are mere laymen. This would be the equivalent of a blue-collar worker standing before a court of elected officials who got there because of their debate and rhetoric skills and perhaps their Ivy League diplomas hanging upon the wall with their postgraduate degrees. And the only conclusion that these men can come to as to why Peter and John speak in such a manner is the truth. They are like this because they have been with Jesus. They had followed Jesus during his three years of public ministry. They had observed his compassionate character, a character which is now being emulated in their own life. They had listened to the wonderful teaching of Jesus, and now they too speak with boldness. They had been in awe over his power to perform miracles, and now it's that same sympathy that moved them toward the lame man. And of course, they had been with Jesus after he rose from the dead. And really, that is the turning point that changes everything. They are emulating Jesus because they had been with Jesus. Pastor McWilliams' sermon on this particular text, he notes that these religious leaders could not deny the reality of the resurrection as an historical fact, but they remained hardened as to the theological reasons for the death and resurrection of Christ. They remained hardened to those reasons that Peter stated there in verse 12. But ultimately, you see, what transforms Peter and John again was that they had been with the risen Christ, and now the Holy Spirit so rules their hearts that they fear God and not man. Being in the presence of Jesus transformed them and changed everything about them. And really, it's the same for us. Transformation happens in our own lives from being in the presence of Jesus. And we are, in fact, most in his presence as we meet him together in public worship. It's here that we encounter him in his word. It's here that we boldly approach him in prayer. It's here that we lift our hearts and voices and song to his name. And it's here that we are struck with the wonder that he has called us from darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Jonathan Landry Cruz, in his little book, What Happens When We Worship, writes, this one day in seven will reorient us, reshape us, put the imprint of the gospel story on our hearts, and erase all the false impressions that the world has left on us about what the good life really is. And indeed, this is the good life, living for Jesus, being captivated by Jesus, 
growing in your love for Jesus, serving him more and growing in your boldness for him. Can people say this about you? That there's something different about you because you have been with Jesus. In a word, the result of being with Jesus translates in their lives into boldness. And it's this boldness of Peter and John which is contagious within the early church. If we were to read on in the passage, we would see that in verse 29, the church prays and asks the Lord for the boldness that they see emulated in these two leaders, in Peter and John. In verse 31, the Holy Spirit answers this prayer by giving boldness to the church. And this boldness you see is liberty, it's freedom, it's confidence to live one's life without the fear of man because you know that you live life before the face of God. And since the living God is with them, there is nothing that man can do to them. The word of God will not be stopped. No amount of intimidation or pressure will stop them, and they will not cower before these religious leaders. And this is a charge that we need as well, because we live in an age in which this is a perverse and crooked world, but our calling is to grow in grace. And so is there a commitment in your own life to cultivate this increased experiential acquaintance with God, your heavenly Father, with Christ as your all-sufficient Savior, and with the Holy Spirit as the one who works sanctifying grace in your lives? Boldness should be the norm for the one who is in the presence of Jesus. So why should we care to cultivate such boldness in our own lives. This is our third and a final point this evening. The reason why we too should be bold for Christ. Since this wondrous gift of salvation has been made ours, the only proper, we might say, expected response is that we long to know him more intimately. We long to serve Him more faithfully. We desire to live for Him more boldly. And let's sort of tie this in a little bit to our ordination and installation service this evening of Len and Anthony to the office of deacon. So our church officers have a number of responsibilities from teaching to shepherding to discipling to serving to overseeing to guarding the church against false teaching, to leading, to praying with and for God's people, to sharing the hope of the gospel and caring for those who have needs. And on top of that, these are men who have full-time jobs and families whom they love. Sometimes it can be overwhelming to consider all that a church officer is called to be and to do. But their most important charge is not all of these responsibilities in and of themselves. The most important thing that they can do is to be with Jesus and being with Him, being made more and more like Him. And so both our elders and deacons are to lead by example, to model for the local church, to model for us what faithfulness to Christ looks like. And our deacons in particular are to model what humble service looks like as they follow Christ. And not in some sort of self-referential manner, but in a God-honoring, 
Christ-exalting way, they are to say, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Every summer, my parents would ship me and my two sisters off to summer camp in the mountains of Colorado for two weeks. The boys would sleep in a circle in cots, 10 or 12 of us, inside of a giant teepee. And yes, we were all guilty of cultural appropriation as we took the name of some Indian tribe upon our group of boys. But halfway through our two-week-long camp, we would take some of our belongings and shove them inside of a sleeping bag and wrap it around our neck and walk a couple miles further out into the woods to camp for two nights. As a bunch of little kids, of course, we had no idea where we were going. We just lined up in a single file line and followed our counselor. We trusted him. He had been there before. He knew the way. He was wiser and had experience and had a better vision. And scripture oftentimes likens the earthly life to a path, as we are called to faithfully plod along upon that narrow path towards our heavenly home. And as we look to those leaders that the Lord has raised up among us to help us, to encourage us, you see, as they follow Jesus. And because of our propensity to wander, because of our foolishness to be taken captive by the thinking of this world, we need the Lord's good provision of godly men to help us, to watch over us, to serve us as they seek to follow our great shepherd of the sheep himself, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He knows the way because he has forged that path for us. He goes to prepare a place for us, and he will return again and take us to be with him forever. And the apostles had that wondrous privilege of being in the presence of Jesus, of learning from him directly, And since the formation of the early church, that spirit-inspired apostolic witness becomes that authoritative body of truth, and our Lord continues to be faithful to raise up men, even in a local place like this, who love Christ Jesus and who want to lead by example. And so Jesus is that forerunner. The apostles follow him. And we learn from their example of holy boldness, and we continue to follow our deacons and our elders as they serve, as they model, and as they lead. And we benefit as we encourage these men, as we pray with them and for them, as we seek to encourage them to be faithful as they come alongside and serve us. And so we give thanks to the Lord for His provision of such faithful men is together we seek to follow, boldly follow our blessed Savior. In closing, consider this thought from James Stalker, who is a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. He wrote this, study God's word diligently for your own edification. And then when it has become more to you than your necessary food and sweeter than honey or the honeycomb, It will be impossible for you to speak of it to others without a glow passing into your words, which will betray the delight with which it has inspired yourself. May the Lord our God be pleased to work such zeal in the lives of his children.